Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This episode is about edge networking. Although in the first half, you won't realize that it's about edge networking because we're really talking about the challenges of managing infrastructure using the Facebook outage of uh, the week we recorded as sort of a starting point for how challenging it is to build resilient infrastructure. Because before we can talk about edge networking, we actually have to talk about edge management and edge control and what it takes to build resilient infrastructure and train people to use it. Um, But after we talk about that, we do move solidly back into edge networking and we have some really solid insights about how challenging edge networking really is. Um, not just creating networks in edge locations, but what does it take to sustain an edge network and the integration and technologies over the course of multiple technology generations. That conversation, which is in the back half, is fascinating, and I know you will enjoy it. So the topic is uh, edge networking. And the backdrop that we get to, thank you, Facebook, is, um, you know, I think it's worth having some quick postmortem or discussion about what uh, Facebook went went down, what caused them, what we know of what caused them to go down for six hours, which looks like it was BGP, very deep networking, um, that masqueraded initially as DNS. And, and there's a huge and in this based on our, the, the desire to talk about backups in the future. What I, what I heard was part of the problem was that they, they had systems down that were interdependent, yeah. which is an edge problem also. And they had to literally break into their own data center because their authentication systems were offline due to the outage. Yeah. So, 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 so Rob, I happen to be friends with Scott Bradner. And I was on a call with him. We we were having we have like a little get together once once every couple months. And Scott happened to have been on the call last night, and we talked about that. Um, and it was it was worse than that. It was the human error, right? Yeah, it was a BGP error. It was caused by somebody going in and making a configuration change, <laughs> which. Oh, right. <laughs> of course, no. That's that's source of most of the, most of these outages. Ultimately, is somebody make you know is making a change or or being able to make a change. Yep, a fat finger or somebody pressing the the uh, send button before the whole file has been completely reconfigured correctly. <laughs> right, or fat finger in this case, um, or not testing in advance. That's another common thing. <laughs> or update a router configuration memory um, or search configuration memory and, and not save it to, to storage. Yes. Another but, another common one, which I actually personally experienced, this was a long time ago. I was uh, the, um, uh, was it the SO, SOA statement, um, system of authority for a uh, small um, DNS domain. Mm-hmm. And um, one of one of the my people worked for me went in and made a change to the file, uh, which was bad actually. Um, but um, we didn't. He didn't reboot the system. 
until the system got rebooted eight months later. Oh. <laughs> and so eight months later, the the domain went down. <laughs> um, and so it was a mill millnet uh, domain. So I got a phone call from the people that were using the domain. Uh, what happened? And so I went in and uh, I saw that, um, you know, a certain person had done S you know, super user in uh, eight months earlier. That was the last time the system had been touched. And in fact, uh, that person had gone in and edited the file, <laughs> um, the DNS name file and had screwed it up. <laughs> so I went into the guy's office and I said, mm, what were you doing on this system? <laughs> uh, would that it would be so to, easy to And then to trying to reconstruct out. an eight-month-old. Eight, eight yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> right. So we reverted and got them back up, but... <laughs> but, but in... But uh, my reading at this... <laughs> yeah. Sorry? Milnet, yeah. No. My reading is though that this then triggered um, a bootstrapping problem that needed physical access. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly what happened. They couldn't get access to the machine that had the configurations that needed to be changed. So they had to go into the data center, but all of their um, authentication to get into the data center was tied into systems that were down. Well, I don't think it was all. It was the cage that held the yeah. the routers right. and the servers. Because I think they actually could get into the data center, but the cage itself was locked. Because, of course, you have multiple layers of, of protection. And you're not going to let just anyone at the data center go into the cage. <laughs> well, certainly not. But but um, putting the authentication system inside the cage was probably not a good idea. <laughs> they they no. probably weren't even aware, right? This is this is the complex systems challenge, right? They, mm -hmm. they the the authentication system. I I, I I'm going to give them deep benefit of the doubt here. It was outside of that cage. It, but it might have had a, a DNS dependency. It had. That's exactly yeah. what it was. It had exactly. a DNS dependency. So although the system itself could have been anywhere, it didn't matter. Unfortunately, something had to go into that cage to get access to it. <laughs> and and to me, this is what's funny. This is what makes this an edge discussion, because while Facebook's data center was not at a remote location. The, the situation created exactly what we're all worried about from an edge perspective, which is something misconfigures an edge infrastructure and suddenly you you're you can't get to it remotely. Well, right. I'm just shocked that it took was it five or seven hours for them to actually manage to figure out what, where, and get their hands on it. I mean, that's just it was. In a Silicon Valley data center, it's not like they don't have <laughs> senior, senior ops. And yeah, the guys who had access to the center didn't have access to the, the machines. You know what? There are phones and phones work in data centers. <laughs> well, 
This is not the first time I've seen a single point of failure like this. I'll, I'll give you another example. And this was a, this is also a true story that happened to me. I was running a lab at both Brennick and Newman. And we had to move the lab on rather short notice because uh, the company was in a fight with the um, owner, the leasing company of the, the facility. So we had to clear out this lab in like six weeks. And uh, so, you know, we were clearing out and taking the machines down and getting moving them out. And I get a phone call from the people that were moving on the day we were moving. Hi, there's a machine in here that's completely unlabeled. We don't know what it is. So um, I said, but so they said, what, what should I do? I was like, you know what? We're going to turn the machine off because we have to get out of this space. We have no choice. And we'll find out. Screen so, test. Dream <laughs> test. Yep, exactly. You're right. Well, we found out who owned it because um, about half an hour later, the knock showed up. Somebody from the knock showed up and said, hi, all of our access cards are no longer working. <laughs> it was it was the secure ID server. <laughs> and I was like, here's your machine. <laughs> Don't put it in my lab anymore. And and see, this is this ties directly back to the edge stuff. It's uh, and people who have done space understand a lot of this stuff because mm-hmm. in space you're not going to you're guaranteed not to be connected for a good chunk of time on a regular ongoing basis. But a lot of the IoT world. They're they're trapped in this whole thing of well we're connected, I and mean, even yeah you know, the regular old kernel folks it's yeah you can always get to the net and so you can install a new system because you can get to the net and it'll suck down the right stuff out of the out except of pipeline and can't. stuff like that except <laughs> when you can't air gaps <laughs> and stuff like that so and this is like the classic IoT of if you're not networked. What's your backup? And nobody seems to ask that freaking question. Yeah, a- I'm old enough to ask that freaking question because I lived that freaking question. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard question, though. It I is mean, hard. It, it's, an, it's an expensive question to answer well. Yes. Well, it doesn't have to be. I mean, I, BBN ran a huge data center for a lot of customers. and. Um, we had outside access. It was pretty complicated. It was expensive. But you know what? We also had a Mac sitting on a cart that we could plug into any machine in the data center and always had access to that machine. Exactly. That's like part of the data center design. You have to have a roving machine that can give you direct access. Right. And that's what we had. Yep. <laughs> But all right, on an edge system, you don't. Yeah, do on you? an edge system, you don't, because you don't always have physical access. You know, in if space, you're... no one can hear you scream. That's on correct. Edge, no one can hear you scream. <laughs> no one can. No, no one can hear you insert the USB drive into the spaceship. That's right. <laughs> well, and and if you think about it, you know, a lot of IoT has the same problem. 
IoT, you know, a lot of IoT devices yeah. are in places that are pretty inaccessible. Like, do you know that rail lines are all, they all have mechanisms um, to keep track if the track is still connect, you know, if the track is right. not out of sync or whatever. Yep. So, well, there another, was a, sorry, Rocky, go ahead. Another example of IoT before people were really aware of IoT is that there are, uh, it, there's a huge gas field in Northern Canada, which sits on semi-permafrost and every single wellhead and every single pipe uh, uh, valve is electronically monitored and controlled. But it has to be, uh, and it's all via cell phone or satellite or both. I don't know whether they're Usually both. satellite. Usually satellite, but sometimes they'll have cell phone too if they've strung out just for a second thing. But literally, you can only get to those, you can only work on the telecommunications about a month or two out of the year because other than that, it's either too cold or too swamp to get in there. So these things are just uh, remote. It's, it's as remote as space in lots of ways. And so you better have something that works or have a fail safe so that if it doesn't work, it fails safely and has a way of letting you know that it's failed either by not responding or something else, you know, the heartbeat or the lack of heartbeat or whatnot. So in the old days, they went through lots and lots of thinking to make this work. But now everybody says, oh, we're all connected. Right. I'm wondering if that Montana train crash is going to turn out to be a failed telecommunications link. Well, there was one, um, hmm. uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, there was, there was a train crash in, uh, like Arizona or in the middle of nowhere, someplace in the South. And it turns out that it was sabotaged by somebody who worked at the railroad. And they never, I don't think they ever tracked down who it was, but it was pretty obvious to sabotage. It was somebody who knew about these electronic systems had disabled it and then the tra and then had somehow made the track. Um, not, you know. Yeah, usually they just put something on on the track that'll cause the uh, the train to derail, like a yeah, or whatever whatever that person did. But they had disabled that the electronic mechanism because the person knew about it. The, That's why they think it was an insider who did it. The one I incident think. that I remember was the one in uh, in Germany. I, I forgot which city, but it involved a commuter train and a freight train. Um, this was human error and computer error to working together. Uh, basically, human error um, transposed the IDs of to, of the freight train uh, when entering it into the system. Um, the system then compounded that because it it had the, the train in, in, in two places at the same time and couldn't deal with the with that exception properly so it, hmm. it gave a, the commuter train the go-ahead to go on, on a on a line 
that was occupied by the French. Yeah, yeah. And just for shits and giggles, uh, long ago and far away in the 70s, one of my brother, my brother's like four years older than I am. One of my brother's friends was out drunk one night with others of his friends. And for some reason, they decided to move some of the railroad ties that were on the side of the track onto the track. And I think he spent 20 years in federal prison. So (laughs) sabotage by through idiocy. (laughs) But yes, it can happen. Much, unfortunately. And and I would not be surprised if that Montana uh, train doesn't turn out to be sabotage. Yeah. It just, it just feels like it. Pardon me for, but so how do you how? Here's a question for you: How do you uh, take into account feels in edge in IoT? When you feel, I mean, we all have years of experience. <laughs> okay, the gut, the gut, and yeah. so you know that there's something wrong with the configuration or the architecture, not necessarily the configuration or the architecture, but you can't quite put your finger on it. How do you work through that to actually figure out what needs to be done to make sure that 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 intuition gets uh, dealt with and satisfied? In in programming circles, that's usually uh, referred to as a smell. Ah. There's a code smell here, so uh, yeah, it, it's it, it's hard to quantify sometimes. Um, I, I think it's it's a matter of communication and knowledge reference. Like uh, if if your reviewer and, and something doesn't feel feel right, uh, you gotta dig down into review and ask for clarification as to like say. Why is this logic like this or so on? Um, but yeah, it's, some, so, sometimes it, it, it even helps to just like uh, communicate as I saying, like, uh, there, there's, there's something off about this. I don't know what it is. Let, let's take a deep, deeper look. And, and, that, and then usually it surfaces or, um, or it gets explained. But Klaus, that's, that's the experience part. Yes. Exactly. Are, are you saying how how to how to train for for that kind of? You, I don't even think it's possible to train for it. It's something that comes from experience. I, I'm not, and I'm not even. I, I don't. I'm not sure. I trust people's gut on this. Part of the challenge. Well, so there there are some ways to train for it. If we look at test pilot, fighter pilot. Mm-hmm. that sort of experience in, in um, space commanders and things like that. So there are ways to test by running through simulations, emul- emulations of known previous issues and known failures in the past, and at least expanding the experience of newbies through running them through scenarios yeah. that have happened in the past that we know about. So mm. there is that way to train, but yeah, and that is done. Is can we actually bring that into 
the software development environment, especially for edge and IoT, where it's critical uh, when you have offline systems and you're going to, but if you can't train folks to these sorts of issues before they're writing the code, we're going to have lots of really um, fragile co code out there. And we probably already do. So we have tons <laughs> of fragile code. It, I find it interesting that at least in the, from what I've seen, yes, there, there are, there's a lot of code which is fragile because of because it makes makes some assumptions about the persistence of some service, like the availability of internet and for I don't know, like a like a enter system or, or DNS and so on. Uh, but at the same time, um, there's also new technologies which are built with with this kind of failure domain in mind. Uh, pretty much and, and any kind of modern decentralized systems like blockchain, uh, IPFS. The, 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 so there are designs for, uh, for systems that are failure resistant, that are uh, split resistant even. So I would say that we have the capacity to, to train people to, to recognize uh, these conditions. Um, question is, is our education of our developers going in the right direction? And, th and this goes back to a discussion that we had, we had earlier, uh, a couple of months back, about the value of boot camps. Um, yeah. So and, and my sense then, uh, which is still unchanged, is that a bootcamp is great if you already have the foundation. But if you don't have that foundation, it can give you the it can steer you in, 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 in the wrong direction easily. False confidence. And, and, exactly. Uh, and and I think that that's part of what's what's happening here is that. We have a lot of developers that are skipping formal education. And I, I'm not saying that, that formal education is flawless, but that there's a great value to formal education. Um, but perhaps it is time to informalize it and, and figure out a way to ensure that uh, even the self-taught developers have access to um, do the, the kind of material that uh, foments good so, uh, good practices. So I want to turn that around and say, instead of informalizing it, may, I'm thinking maybe we should take a, uh, a cue from the chip design world and look at how, if you're a, a chip designer, ch circuit designer, for any reasonable size company, there is generally yearly education uh, courses that are uh, a couple of days to a couple of weeks on the new tools and the new architectures and the new debugging uh, processes. 
And a chip designer is learning every single year new stuff and is being taught. And the companies are supporting the education because they need to keep their chips up to uh, competitive levels. Now, the something that I always found kind of irritating is that the software community didn't seem to have a similar sort of education process. And the only one of the few places I saw software education was at a company that was really a hardware manufacturer that sent the software guys to learn uh, the Microsoft hardware abstraction layer and uh, the Microsoft tools and stuff so that they could write system software uh, and bring Microsoft up on their hardware. That's one of the few places I've seen continuing education actually incorporated into the corporate culture of software. And we know that Google doesn't do it, and we know Facebook doesn't do it. And yet, in the old days, the whole thing about going to IBM was that you go to IBM as straight out of school. IBM runs you through an apprenticeship program, HP also, where you spend six months in this group, six months in that group, six months in another, and you learn the basics. You get the foundations through this apprenticeship. Then these companies have to find a way to keep you around because they just invested all this money in you. But still, and what I've seen, and I'm sure Beth feels in some ways the same way in the open source community and OpenStack was that there are lots of developers that have never gone through that. Mm -hmm. And the problem became, uh, it worked great in DevStack. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and so I, it works yes. it works fine on your little home lab, but it doesn't actually work in reality. And a lot of the open source folks don't have any experience outside of their home lab to understand why it won't work fine elsewhere. Here for a moment, I, I, I thought that at the beginning of your uh, paragraph it, that, that you would... Uh, Propose um, ongoing ed. You have to have ongoing ed certifications. Actually, uh, actually no. I, th- I thought you you would propose certifications. Yeah, certifications uh, but, only goes so far because they can be gamed. Exactly. And True. That, uh, on, on on the other hand, for example, if if you look at other engineering fields like electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, yeah, you're not allowed to, to call yourself an, an engineer. On that you get that field yes. unless you have your. Um, and you need to be recertified. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm an architect, and there are continuing ed. I I have a re, I have a registered architect as in building, and I maintain that. But you do have to do continuing ed. They they have like six credits a year or something. Yeah. Uh, whatever. But uh, and, and as grueling as CISP is, uh, it it does have the same component of it does, like yeah. continuing credits. Yeah. Well, that's why it's valuable. And perhaps especially for edge slash IoT, we need something like building codes. Um, The building codes are essentially standards that everybody has to both uh, build to and demonstrate knowledge of on a continuing basis. Uh, So that might be a little bit 
Yeah, some people might think that's a little bit extreme, but in other ways, it's like we're dealing with with safety at this point, and so it's not so extreme. And and I I do want to steer us into into edge networking specifically. (laughs) Yeah, Um, Yeah, we've kind of gotten away from that there. (laughs) And the challenge with with any of these certifications with edge is Certifications require that you actually understand the topics or you have best practices or you, you have things that you can certify people on. And they, I'm, they not, also write, I'm, not sure we're, I'm not sure we're there. So. I don't think we are, but there are some mechanisms that we could get into it. And this is actually edge networking. So um, medical, medical um, device technology has come a long way yes. since. Um, and there's a lot of work you know, when they put a pacemaker in you, that's got a bunch of electronics in it. And there's software now in there. And, and you know, it, it's certainly um, off the grid, so to speak, right? It's definitely an edge device. Um, and, of course, you and it also has to be, um, you know, protected. You know, security becomes an issue. Um, nobody has done it. But um, it has been demonstrated that um, pacemakers can be hacked at this point. Oh, it, they have done it. They have hacked. Well, they have done it, but they haven't done it to a person who was wearing a pacemaker, put it that way. As I mean, far as I know. Pacemakers are also still susceptible to ele- electromagnetic interference. Yes, and certainly. To the point where, 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 again, you're, you're asked not to put your phone in your, in your chest pocket or operate the microwave. Right, right. And mm-hmm. and, um, and certainly autonomous cars, which fortunately are people have sort of pulled away from, that have been Except shown for to Tesla. be What? <laughs> Except for Tesla. <laughs> yeah, they're they're nuts. Um, I I personally think autonomous uh, trucks will will come far earlier because that makes a whole lot more sense. Uh- and actually, I had a friend who's work who was working in a company that was doing um, uh, truck caravans, where yeah. the first truck in line has a real driver, and the rest of them are, are net, networked in and right. following. And that's actually, I think, been approved in certain test situations. I should point the- out they've just reinvented the train. It's a software connection instead of a hardware link. If they put, if they put uh, guiding, 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 uh, guiding rails in. Yeah, if they put all they need is guiding beacons, and I, I don't even think you need rails. You just need beacons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now you have the train track. Yeah, that's train. To to be fair, it it does have a big advantage over 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 trains. Uh, at least in, in the local area, and that you you can you can set your caravan to to go from city A to city B, but then once they reach their destination city, they're all going to in their own suburb to to do their yeah yeah there, there are yeah and and also has to do with um cert, to a certain extent the um in the, certainly in the United States, the road system is better than the rail system, but that's not that's not true in all parts of the world. I know Europe has a better rail system than a road system, so. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, but anyhow, we digress. Um, 
So, so in a, in an edge networking scenario, right? What's the fundamental building block? Well, you need you need a some kind of node uh, that does some kind of compute activities, uh, and then you need a network. And is, that is that are we building things around the top of rack switch? I know that the that that the cell networks, the RANs, are often a different network than the backhaul network. Yep, routers. Yeah. Um, is there like are we going to converge to like the minimum edge location is a top of rack switch and a RAN with you know maybe a, a hybrid top of rack RAN you know unit and that switch as bastion right I think that which is bad yeah <laughs> I'm getting deja vu beat it to death <laughs> yeah yeah no I don't see it that way I don't I see that the 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 edge node the extreme edge node is a box someplace it could be hanging off a light pole i i would however say that the, the third fundamental component of edge networks is the peer because otherwise you have a standalone system yeah yes mm. yes it has to be right it has to be in some kind of confederation whether it be a loose confederation and rob that gets into the how much autonomy does the node have or not yeah. it, it could be an, an in like a, a a peer at the equal level that, that where it's just like meshing or right. or it could be a, a central server where that where mm -hmm. information is, is gathered from or, or or aggregated to right well if you think about sd-wan architectures that's how they work there is some kind of centralized policy controller and it, and each one works a little bit differently but but in in SD-WAN scenarios you have some kind of controller you have nodes and the nodes can be wherever uh, they can be in the cloud they can be out at a customer location they can be uh, in you could interpret some like um, you know if you have some client software you have remote access that's you can have SD WAN that you know at your home, um, and uh, all of those are you know, and it's all an overlay network, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to manage it somehow. Um, it goes over mm -hmm. whatever transport, right? It's transport agnostic, so you you have to support and and here's my bugaboo about um, edge. Everybody ignores the fact that transport is, you know, I'm a, from a telecom, right? So I know that wireless and wireline transport are actually quite different and they behave differently and they're accessed differently and they're supported differently. But most people don't know that. Mm. <laughs> most yeah. people just think, oh, it's just, you know, it's the internet, so we'll just get to it, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and, and that's just, just talking about like established uh, network uh, protocols that, that are widely used, but you also right. have peer-to-peer -peer networks, right. uh, which may have their, their own proprietary communi communication. Yeah, yeah. It, so I will say it freaking irritates the hell out of me that Comcast uh, makes you pay for their router box that allows them to vampire your bandwidth off of your router box to sell as 
as their mobile phone network. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, they're, that's they're so freaking X, Xfinity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, so in, in what we're talking about, though, how much of there is there a difference between a gateway, like you're building an edge zone in this? Because this is where, like, I, I, I understand, and Beth, I'm, I'm really interested in this difference between the, the wireless and the wired or the, like, how, how a cell phone, inter, you know, networking interaction is different than a, like a Wi-Fi or a, a wired inter, interaction. Yeah, it's very different. Yep. Um, and, and it is a gateway, at least on, uh, in the Comcast uh, version, the Xfinity version, it's a gateway. They're gateways, right? So, so what you've got in in an edge scenario is you have this whatever's inside that bubble is is and I guess I'm I'm trying to establish things because I'm, I'm keep hoping to get more clarity in my own mind on how this stuff goes, right? There's sort of like I, I usually think of it as like inside of the edge data center. I guess if it's wireless, it's a bubble, and then you have a connectivity to another back, you know, back to you know. The internet back to a broader about well, but that's a hierarchy. System. That's a hierarchy okay. scenario. But you can also do, you know, Muni Wi-Fi was was a big thing about twenty years ago. Everybody was mm. seeing if they could yeah. do that. It was instead of instead of doing it, it, using cell phones as data because this twenty years ago people didn't really do that much with cell phone as data. Um, it was still focused on voice. So the idea was that hey. We'll set up a mesh network of a bunch of little Wi-Fi nodes, and they, they, they used 802.16 uh, wi, uh, Wi-Fi Max, and they would s- stick it up. This was particularly popular in rural areas, um, and they would stick it on telephone poles and electric poles or whatever in these rural areas. And, the, and there was a bunch of people that started these little companies that were basically s- serving internet to rural areas this way by creating these meshes. (laughs) And Huawei made loads of money off of selling those all over um, Africa. And they're still doing that with the current, with uh, 3G, 4G technology. If you got a tall pole, we can set you up with connectivity to the next town over and your whole town can have connectivity. Yep. Yeah. But uh, that's I mean, I don't I don't think of that as an edge application or what we what I usually well, think it's an of edge, edge network. It's not an edge, edge application. Network. Yeah, it's but, an edge uh, okay. but you could you could stick an application on it and then you have an edge. And if you take a look at Facebook's open source project tip TIP. It's exactly okay. that. They're putting up little uh, mesh networks on telephone poles to provide Wi-Fi access to everybody so they can get more customers. Yeah. I thought they had suspended that project. but They, they might have. It's been a while since I looked at that. Um, but they it, also but have... They had a, they built a satellite. They built... A, Pole top stuff for um, 5G. Well, they probably suspended tip because they went to 5G instead. I guess I guess I still I, I agree that it's edge networking. I don't see that from from what I think of as as the edge the edge conversations that we have. I always see the localized compute like 
you know, not the client side, but localized compute as part of the the edge story that we're building. It's not just a question of connecting. Yeah. Yeah, we're focusing on the network piece of it. But remember, there's content delivery that gets Mm. folded into that, right? So there's edge. So there's content caching. There's CDN that goes in on top. That's an application. And that would be a local that that needs to be yeah. a point of presence. So so in, right. in this network mesh, you know, CDN becomes an, you know probably the simplest application to understand yeah. of of that whole environment. And caching would be make total sense. As a matter of fact, you'd be crazy Far not forward. to do caching. Yeah, um, and that's that's an obvious one. Um, and, yeah. But I I see you know the potential to have you know, offload for your phone or to have, you know, better sensor networks or more sensors or an integrated application pulling a whole bunch of local data together. That can't happen until we have a a effective operational environment for those applications, or they're just going to be on the phone or they're going to be in the client. But I... I, You're absolutely correct, which is what MEC is all about. Um, and that is, I can tell you, Verizon has been working on this problem for the last at least two years, probably coming up on two and a half years. You know, so here we are building out our 5G network. And what's the big money question? Why would anybody go to 5G? What what does it gain over yes. regular old wireless? Right. <laughs> yes. Why would somebody pay for this? How are we going to monetize and amortize this? Right. I mean, there's some reasons internally to go to 5G, right? Because it saves you a ton of money on the back end. You know, it's uh, particularly for fixed wireless. So we we launched. Uh, so Verizon doesn't have um, great broadband. We have, you know, in the Northeast, it has good broadband. But outside of the Northeast, it it really doesn't. So we're competing. So we find ourselves not in a great position against Comcast, which is a bigger footprint in the broadband space. And DSL is, let's face it, antique technology rapidly should be shuffled off the mortal coil. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, that, I'm just remembering how, how excited we were about DSL back in the day. But yes, I know, I know, I know. But I just got my mother off it. <laughs> that, that brings up, a, however, a, an interesting question. Um, is there value for resurrecting older technologies like dial-up, for example, as, as a DR uh, solution? Like, would, would the Facebook engineers have been able to, to do dial-up over a cell network to, to get the, their authorized people connected into their into the machines. Um, we we do that for our managed customers, our man, managed customers. We always have, we require what we call out-of-band access. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got to have that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, there's a whole lot of customers that don't want to pay for it because mm-hmm. out-of-band access is, as, as Klaus said, it's older technology. Yeah, that's what you call fallback. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but, you know, we're relying on literally 100-year-old copper wire that was paid for in the 1930s. 
to it, support it still this works. Stuff. Well, I just had an argument yesterday with Scott Bradner about that. I'm like, uh, it sort of works. Well, yeah, I think so. I hate to say it, but things like beat boxes and stuff are deteriorating rapidly. Yeah. So, but that's from lack of maintenance, not from uh, the fact that the copper's copper's not failing. It's the connections that are failing. The connections and the splices and yep. the fact that, you know, copper and water do not mix. <laughs> so, which means you, you know, the insulation is failing. <laughs> right. um, and then you so got, sorry, uh, just one thing. Like you, you also got more recent elephant access, like 3G cell networks, right. which, however, are being sunset now in, in the U.S. So... I, I wonder, no, but four G, four G out of band access works just fine. <laughs> for for those who have devices that that are capable of doing four G, uh, I you know I haven't looked it up. I know my mother is going to have to buy a new phone, but um, because she she has a three G phone, but her phone, you know, I've been bragging on her to replace it because it's a fifteen year old phone. I, I'm talking more about out-of-band access. Yeah, no, out-of-band access. So so Verizon's out-of-band access for our managed customers takes a bunch of different options. Yeah, you can do the POTS line with the DSL. That's becoming increasingly difficult. But you can also do LTE. We don't care. Just wireless. We don't care what kind of wireless it is. It could be 5G, 4G. We don't give people... E- Oh, 3G particularly, but it's just a SIM card. You know, it's just it's just a wireless modem. We don't care what it is. Um, the problem is, is that we get into situations um, where you don't have wireless access, you don't have DSL. What what's your third option? And and that's where so the the oil fields and the gas fields up in Canada, the way they're connected is. If they're connected satellite, satellite, but the other way is CDMA. So it's yeah. 2G. There are places where 2G has to continue to work if the edge and IoT is going to work. And so I. Well, but that's because they put the CDMA um, infrastructure in. There's nothing stopping them other than cost to right. replace that CDMA infrastructure with. 4G infrastructure. But <laughs> considering they don't need it for compute power for those particular sensors, and yeah, yeah. it's cheaper to just fix the one or two sites that break every year than it is to replace the entire network. And you need a network that's actually close. You have to actually re-architect the network because of the um, distance limitations of 3G, 4G, 5G, yeah. as opposed to 2G. Right. And you've, already got, you've already got the tower poles and towers in place. Adam, yeah, you got the towers. Power. Exactly. And so some of that old technology, you know, like you said, POTS is, is kind of dying because technology is not being maintained by the right. uh, the uh, telecom providers. But the other but, ones, it's like if a company is going to pay Verizon to keep that 2G network up, Verizon's going to keep that 2G network up. Yeah. Well, we'll just at you know when for the oil field example, that's that's pretty much a self-contained system. So we're just gonna you know pull the two G signal back and then do a convert. 
Right. But you'll still main, you know, it's like if the 2G equipment dies and you're on contract to fix it, you'll send someone out to replace it and just keep that enclosed network up and do the right. whatever works in it, your it, hoping closet. hoping we can still get the equipment. That's become so a, there's that a becomes fascinating a component to this. Um <laughs> which is the durability of edge infrastructure that is so easy to overlook mm -hmm. in, in all this stuff. Because mm -hmm. right, any of these edge sites, especially when you start talking about large-scale deployments, they, they're, they have to have a time durability in them um, that is different than what we're used to for like, especially cloud bus stuff, which seems like it has a, you know, a mayfly half-life. Um, yeah, we, I mean, just putting, just putting one networking technology in place might not be acceptable, right? These are antennas. It's not like you're a software patch. You're, you're actually committed, to, right. um, a certain bandwidth. <laughs> well, to a bandwidth, but also to a radio, um, yeah. and, 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 but there's physicality of like, oh, wait, there's, uh, antenna placement that goes along with that. Um, and right of way, legal, legal right of ways to secure, you know, a tower position well, in order to just power supply to the, to those antennas as well. And, and power. Yeah, and then right. if you take a look at, at the existing IOT infrastructure, like agrarian, the farms and stuff like that, and these oil fields. So they've been out there since at least 2G. And there are all these new applications and stuff coming up. And then the question comes up. Do you make it work on the network they have? Do you make it work on the network they have and the latest greatest, or you just only make it work on the latest greatest? And the farmers aren't going to put up with just the latest greatest, but they might put up with some migration path. But then you have to have the migration path from what's out there right now to what you want it to be. Huh. You know, it's interesting thinking about this. I, I would be much more inclined in building an edge infrastructure to focus on a gateway scenario. Like if I was doing an oil field, um, which is granted going to cover a lot of ground, uh, I would try to isolate the networking inside of the oil field topography I had from whatever gateway to the internet I had, assuming that would progress much faster. And I, I haven't heard, I haven't heard or even thought through in my own conversations that this edge topology networking does actually, you know, have maybe a firmer firewall in it than not, not for firewall sake, but from a technology innovation pace sake. Um, uh, I, I think there's some truth to that because uh, we're working with a um, utility company um, that has substations and they have, you know, thousands of substations all over the place. And, uh, you know what an electric substation looks like, right? Mm -hmm. It's a bunch of transformers. Um, there's electromagnetic field, by the way, there, oh, <laughs> uh, which really? wreaks havoc with the wireless network. <laughs> um, they have security issues, right? Because substations uh, are sabotage targets. Attractive, yeah. Yeah. There, there was one out here in San Jose that got sabotaged a, a number of years back. It was a big, mm -hmm. it was a Peaker plant plus substation. 
Yes. But, yeah. Uh, and along those lines, you do. So it's it's partly the standards issue. It's if you're going to do an IoT and edge, you need to have standards that at least the IoT maintains, which means edge has to be a gateway to those standards. But then you also have both hardware and longevity lock-in. So you have to contract, you have to contract to make sure that it has the number of years of support you need to get your return or to maintain the system. So for instance, um, Sun Microsystems had in the mid nineties was still still manufacturing Sun One systems for a specific alphabet letter government agency. Oh, that doesn't surprise me in the least. (laughs) Yeah, it's like uh, 20 years and they're still building the same hardware because they had a contract and they had to, to do it. But for these edge things, for edge and IoT, until there are reasonable standards and migration paths, there need to be contracts in place for the folks who need the long-term. So this in some ways goes back to long-term Linux too, because they're going to need that long-term Linux on those systems too. That's right. So this is, yeah. (laughs) Well, it's, it's interesting from, from our perspective, because we're dealing with enterprise customers who have, you know, long depreciation cycles on some of their, their assets. And, um, you know, computers are usable. A lot of these systems are usable long past their depreciation cycles. Um, although I guess they still dispose of them because of corporate accounting, but different. It is. Um, different I, I, that's not states. particularly true of um, telecoms. Telecoms keep equipment going for for decades. Mm. Hundred plus years on some of those uh, switch uh switch banks <laughs> that's true well you you put 100 you know you put a lot of sites out there and and migrating them is is crazy hard i was i had a conversation with a telco cable provider and uh they were walking me through a, a list of all the systems that they still have in service and, and most of you know not most but a significant enough number were no longer manufactured no longer had patches they were but they were still core infrastructure incredibly yeah and actually um, this this comes back to on edge. You know, can you actually patch at the rate that our software environment is patching uh, for the the general mm. user right now? And a lot of these systems can't. You can't do that. You can't sit there and roll a security patch every fifteen minutes to these things. No. Uh, you better have a way to. Do that. <laughs> you, you better. Well, you better. And, and this actually this brings us this brings us full circle because right we started the conversation with a Facebook patch that went awry and took down their entire, and entire this, system. So this is why you need the out of band and why the out of band is actually important for the edge because if you have a wire to the system, you've got a way to access it even if everything else is uh, radio, or if you have a radio that can, that has a reset, it's reboot to known good. And yes. you have, and it could be an ancient known good, but you work your way forward. I mean, Space telescope has a safe mode. It went into safe mode 
and it took them two months to get back out of it, but they were able to get back out of it because of how it was designed. This, this to me is part of the missing part of the conversation on edge, which is really infrastructure as code. Yeah. 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 Right. And that's, that's like this, I'm, I guess I'm sort of patiently waiting for the edge conversation to come back around to that. But if, if you can't have a way to describe fully describe the full environment, the control plane environment for an edge site, I, I don't see how we propagate safely propagate changes through these systems um, because they're so dependent on everything being right. Well, yeah, we we need a mechanism to kind of reset. I mean, I remember, I mean, this goes back to the mid-1990s when HP invented the Insight board for its servers. Mm-hmm. And that was like big revolution, revel, revelation. All it was literally was a TSL modem. <laughs> um, so to basically to the serial console. Yeah. yeah, that's all it was. But and it was extremely expensive. But you know what? It was worth it. <laughs> I I think smart nicks are going to be a similar. I, I would I would play. I would I would suspect 10, 10 years from now, we're going to be looking at smart nicks. Essential yeah, technology do that. for yeah. that for that reason too, but there's a lot of bumpy innovation between here and there. Right, and I, that would be a good topic for another. I'm going to put that on the list. <laughs> Smart Nick, Clark Lost. Go ahead. You want to take I, us out? Uh, and I was just to say, like, I, I, I would like to see more recovery technology technology being more ubiquitous. Um, but unfortunately, I don't see it actually happening because there's always going to be people who who want to cut costs, and, and unfortunately, yeah. redundancy is uh, the first thing one or one of the first things to go. Right. And back to the backups. Backups are great unless you don't have a way to actually restore them. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> or they don't work. <laughs> that too. You don't, or you, you don't can, reverse it. Resiliency yeah. technology is is you know used to, we used to say quality is job one point oh one or one point one. <laughs> well, resiliency is even beyond that. It's one point four or five when finally fails to a point you can't deal. Two point oh. Two point two point one. Yeah. Because well, you actually try it for 2.0 and you don't quite get it right, so it's got to be it's, 2.1. <laughs> it's, it's it's ultimately a problem for your successors. Is the way to, to define it, right? Yep. Uh, I don't know how much we talked about edge networking, but we certainly talked. Well, I, so, this this to me was like our conversation on Monday. We talked about edge hardware, and it mm-hmm. came back to control plane. And yeah. and actually, the edge edge networking came back to. You want to have, in some ways, a uh, a walled garden. Yeah, and I think that was an, a good insight too. Yeah, yeah. You, you need a slightly walled garden with the controller somewhere, a smart controller at the edge, which has more accessibility than than your uh, leaf nodes. Right. Right. All right. All right, everybody. Anyway, Thank you. I enjoyed yeah. it. Cool. Talk to you again it's soon. Fun. Yeah, I do. Thanks.
of the things I love about Club 2030 discussions is they're open. We let them wander a little bit. And, and this one definitely let us explore some areas about the topic that were really important uh, and often get short shrift. So I hope you enjoyed our ad hoc conversation getting into edge networking and then our very focused edge networking conversation after it. It's exactly why I love these conversations um, because they're not scripted. They're not controlled. They're not trying to put a vendor pitch in front of you or a point of view in front of you, but explore it together. And I hope you enjoyed them too. Please come and be a part of them. Uh, we do this every week, uh, twice a week with different uh, theme discussions on an agenda and a schedule, and we want you to be a part of it. So join us at the2030.cloud and get to hear your voice on these recordings. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently. Because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know, laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.